behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel said, or answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, uh, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. God, thank you for our time in your word this morning. And thank you for sending your son into this world. Uh, we also thank, uh, are thankful in advance for the second coming of Christ where he will establish visibly his eternal reign forever and ever. Uh, as this season is upon us, we pray that you would give us lots of joy uh, because we know Jesus Christ, because we have friends and family and a church family that love us and care for us, uh, that we have a mission to do for your glory in the city of Denver, and that we would ha- uh, have an abundance of celebration this, this week as we focus on you and as we enjoy each other's company and enjoy the blessings that you've given us. Uh, We thank you for um, your time or this time in your word. We also thank you for uh, the new little one that was born into the family uh, this week, Benson May, that uh, watch over her as she's in the hospital right now and gave birth to that little boy. So thank you for our time again in your word and bless it to our understanding of who you are and what you've done for us. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. We're going to uh, walk through a story today, and as we do, I want you to remember another verse, and this is a common verse that you know, John 3.16, you'll probably see it at some NFL games, maybe behind the goalposts this week, but you remember that verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever should believe in him should have uh, eternal life, then they won't perish. That's a paraphrase, of course, of that verse, but I want you to remember that God's love Uh, makes the impossible possible. And it's not necessarily making the impossible of of us getting something from God other than salvation and his son, which is all we need and all we can ask for. Uh, God's love makes the impossible possible. And I want you to think about that as we travel through this story of Mary and the promise that from her womb would come the Savior of the world. Um, Now, when I tell stories or when I hear stories and and they engage me, it's good to know the context or the setting of the story to get a feel of what's going on in the life of Mary during this time where the angel Gabriel comes to her. And and let me just set up the scene really quick. The the Jewish people were conquered by Rome in about 63 uh, B.C., and the political climate in in Israel, in, in Judea, in Palestine was one of subservience to the Roman prefect. I mean, there was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You didn't vote. You just paid taxes, and they told you what to do. It was kind of a a double whammy, if you will. There there was no freedom. There was no uh, joy. There was a lot of despair, a lot of oppression, a lot of poverty, a lot of hunger. And the Jewish people had to live in this totalitarian state in which the Roman government made and enforced the rules. There, There was no... Uh, uh, freedom of any kind in this situation. And there was uh, some ability for the Jewish religious leaders to lead their people, but their 
leadership or their so-called rule over their own people was sometimes as severe as the Romans. They, they were charging taxes and they were forcing people to follow these strictures of their religion. And the poor people of that time, most of them, uh, we know from history, were living in a subsistence lifestyle of farming or fishing or some sort of what, what you grew in your garden or what you grew in your field is what you had to eat. There was no uh, uh, riches, if you will, for most of the people. They were living in a very difficult time. Um, one of the, the articles that I read about the Roman rule uh, during this time was that estimates range that from 63 B.C. to the beginning of, of the revolts of the Jewish people late in the first century A.D., uh, estimates range anywhere, and this is a big range, but 10,000 to 200,000 Jewish people were crucified by the Roman government during that time. Uh, you can imagine an invading force coming into your country and choosing to crucify mostly political prisoners, uh, upwards maybe of 200,000 of them during your reign. This was a difficult time. Th- there was a lot of despair. There was a lack of hope. The, the Israelites, the Jewish people, hadn't heard from their God for 400 years prior to this time where Jesus was born into the world. Uh, people at this time married young, and it was because they had a, a very short life expectancy, and they had a very difficult life, again, subsistence farming and fishing, or somehow making a living off of the land in order to eat. Uh, life expectancy was very low due to disease and poverty and lack of nutrition. And you come to this little town called Nazareth. And and Nazareth was not New York City. It wasn't London. It wasn't Paris. It wasn't even Denver. It it, it was more like Rifle, okay? Some of you know that I hail from a little town called Rifle before I came to college here in, in the city of Denver. It's just this little burg in the middle of nowhere. Uh, Nazareth was even uh, smaller than that. It was basically a, a town of a few families that was off the beaten path. There was no uh, tourism. There was no uh, trade going through that city. It was just this small, little, dirty, dusty town. Very difficult to make a living. Very difficult to find uh, uh, food and to j- just live in this place called Nazareth. No trade routes, not a bustling, famous city, barely recognizable as a town, and yet it's the place where God sent his angel, Gabriel, to tell Mary that she would give birth to Jesus. So that's the setting. 400 years of not hearing from God, living in despair, living in, in basically hopelessness, joylessness, a void of peace due to the Roman government and their totalitarian rule, and it's probably a place in these people's lives and history where they wondered if God loved them anymore. After being conquered by the Romans and not hearing from God for all that period of time, they had this question probably in their mind, does God still love us? And we get to the beginning of Luke chapter 1, and we're not going to go into a lot of that passage, but the beginning of of this chapter in Luke 1 talks about this guy named John the Baptist. And he's a really interesting character, and we've talked about him in some prior weeks during the Advent season. But uh, God chose to speak again through his angel Gabriel uh, to this priest uh, named Zechariah. And Zechariah was married to Elizabeth, who was a cousin of Mary, and she was barren. Elizabeth was a barren woman, and Zechariah, who was a priest 
in the temple is told by the angel Gabriel uh, that John the Baptist is coming. And what's really interesting is, and we'll see a a comparison or a contrast of responses to the news uh, from the angel Gabriel, Zechariah doesn't believe. (laughs) He's basically like, what are you talking about? My wife is barren. There's no way that she's going to have a child. And because he doesn't believe, God says, uh, Gabriel says to him that God is going to make you silent until the birth of your son. And so Zechariah goes through this period of time during the pregnancy of Elizabeth where he's unable to speak. And it says early in Luke chapter 1 that John the Baptist is going to turn the hearts of the people to their God, and he's going to make ready a people who will be prepared for the Lord. Now, imagine the contrast of the setting with the message that this guy is going to come as a prophet of God, and he is going to make ready a people who will be prepared for the Lord. They might ask, what Lord are you talking about? We haven't heard from the Lord. We don't know who the Lord is. We have no um, hope that he is coming. All, all we have is, is this despair in this, this government that we're living under. It, it's horrid conditions. And Zechariah is told that this guy is going to come, John the Baptist. And it's interesting that he says, uh, the, that Gabriel says to Zechariah, John the Baptist will turn the hearts of the people to their God. At our church and at churches that preach a doctrine of the gospel, we understand that the heart is at the center of life, and your heart needs a transformation. Your heart needs to be changed when you when you are to follow the Lord, when you know know the Lord. And it's interesting, he says that he won't turn the behaviors of the people to their God. He will turn the hearts of the people to their God. We know that John the Baptist can't change the heart of the people, but he's going to prepare the way for this person, this, this, this man uh, named the Lord, okay? So that leads us into our passage today. And the first teaching that I, that I uh, see in verses 26 through 30, uh, 38 is that God loved us enough to send Jesus. Okay? So we know that God, lo- uh, his love makes the impossible possible. We know that he loved us enough to send Jesus. That is a miracle, that is the greatest gift that human history has ever seen, that into situations that are dire. And you might be living in the most posh mansion, driving the best car, living the greatest life, drinking the greatest wines, eating the best prime rib, whatever it is, you might be living that life, but your life is in a dire situation because of this thing called sin that separates us from God. And so here comes God who loves us enough to send Jesus, the only true Savior and Lord. So let's look at the circumstances, again, of of Mary's life. It's a small, dusty town, and she is a virgin woman who is going to be married to this man named Joseph. Joseph was basically a carpenter in, in this particular area, and she was betrothed, meaning that she was committed to marry this man. They weren't married yet. And you have to ask yourself, in this small, dusty town, probably a very young woman who is a virgin, not quite married, why did God choose Mary? And you see a a couple of hints here, but we don't get a real deep understanding. I think that's on purpose. I'll I'll tell you why here in a second. But, But the passage says that God chose Mary because he favored her and that she had, quote, unquote, found favor with God. 
No, it doesn't really give us an understanding of why she found favor. But I think a lot of us go straight to this mindset that Mary did something to receive favor from God. That she was somebody who had really, you know, helped the homeless or brought in the stray cat from the town or had done something morally upright to find favor with God. And that is not the teaching, uh, uh, the biblical teaching of God finding favor or giving favor to someone. Uh, Basically, God's favor is all the time unmerited. Mary didn't do anything in particular to earn the favor of God. God simply found favor with her because in an unmerited, graceful way, he chose her to be the mother of, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Next in the story is this promise that the angel Gabriel gives to Mary, and, and he says to her, you will conceive a son, and his name will be Jesus. And of course, it's Christmas time, and of course, we know that the name of Jesus uh, is talked about every Christmas or, or throughout the year. If you come to this church, you'll definitely hear what the name of Jesus is about, but the, the literal name is the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua, and it means the one who saves or it could mean God saves. That's the, the literal technical meaning of it. But there is a, a deeper meaning that, that the language or that the Hebrew iteration of this has attached to it. And, and this is what, in a deeper way, it means. And this was something that, you know, I just learned after being in church my whole life. Uh, I just saw that the, the, this week. Jesus is the one who is enough. He's the one who is enough. And not enough like we think of enough, like just enough to get over that 50% level or, or just enough to get the job done. Jesus is enough or he is sufficient. He is the one who is enough or he is the one who is sufficient. God says through the angel Gabriel to Mary, name your son the one who is sufficient. Now, you scratch your head and you say, well, sufficient for what? Well, he is sufficient and this is kind of a, a bedrock discussion going on in the Christian world today. So hear this out because this is really important. He is the only one who is sufficient to save us. He is the only one sufficient who is enough to save us. And that brings up another question. Uh, save us from what? Save us from our complete separation from God because of our sin. There needed to be a sacrifice for that. Jesus is enough. He is the sufficient sacrifice for our sin. That is why he came into the world. Yes, he came into the world so that hearts would be changed and they would want to go right some of the wrongs of the world because they want to glorify God and how they live their life and how they serve people who need to be served. But at the bedrock of the gospel messages, Jesus came because he is a a sufficient And he alone is sufficient to pay the penalty for our sin. God sent him. He loved us enough to make the possible or the impossible possible. The impossible is, in the sense is we cannot pay for our sin. The very name of Jesus has this idea around it that he is the only sufficient sacrifice so that we can have a relationship with our creator. Uh, That is the reason why he came. He didn't come to make us feel better about ourselves. He didn't come to to make us 
better citizens. All of those things happen as a result of a heart transformed. And we are for those things. We understand that that is part of the story. But the, the, the guts, the, 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 the inner workings of this gospel message is Jesus is sufficient to pay the penalty for your sin. He's the only one. That's why he is named Jesus. That is the meaning behind why Gabriel says, name your son the one who is sufficient. And then he has, Gabriel, a second part of the promise. And, and, and basically, he promises, uh, in a way, who, who Jesus will be. Who, who will this Jesus be, according to the promise that Gabriel tells to, to Mary? First, he will be great. He will be great. Again, man, the, the language here is so rich with, with meaning. When it says great, um, you know, the, we think of, yeah, I, I had a great day or I, I did a great thing. And it, we attach that word and, and to, to things that maybe aren't truly great and it kind of diminishes the, the richness and the power of this word. When, when Gabriel says he will be great, it, it means this. He will surprise and overwhelm you with his greatness and importance. Gabriel says to Mary, he is going to surprise and overwhelm you, Mary, and the rest of the planet with his greatness and importance. Has there been a figure in human history that is more overwhelming or more important than Jesus Christ? Even if you don't believe in him, he is the pinnacle of history. We name the years on our calendar after when he was born. Uh, we, we count time based on when he came into the planet. Uh, this is an important figure. It's an overwhelming surprise of importance and greatness. So this, this week as you celebrate Christmas, remember that the angel Gabriel said he will be great and all the while knowing that he's going to grow up a poor carpenter's son who does ministry amongst the poor and the grief-stricken and the sinful and the proud and the rich and eventually is hung on a cross by the Roman government, by the Jewish leaders of the time, and by us. We put him on the cross. He will be great. And when you look at his life and the trajectory of what he did when he came onto the planet and the ministry and the crucifixion and his death and his resurrection, in the moment of those things, you might thought, man, this isn't great. This is a tragedy. This is the greatest tragedy and triumph of all time. He will be great. He will surprise and overwhelm you with his greatness and importance. Very important that, that, that we know that because it comes into play here um, when we see Mary's response in a few verses. He also says, the angel Gabriel, that he will be the son, capital S, of the Most High, capital M, capital H. Jesus, what Gabriel is saying, to a Jewish woman in a highly religious Jewish culture, this is the guy you've been waiting for. This is the Messiah. This man who will be born to you is, is deity. He is God. And he is also the promised Messiah. There are over 
there are hundreds of prophecies about Jesus or who the Messiah will be. And Jesus fulfills every single one of them. And the angel Gabriel says to Mary, this is the son of the Most High. Not one of the sons, not a son. He is the son of the Most High. This is the Son of God, the promised deity, Messiah, that has come to earth. He will be fully man and fully God. And then lastly, Gabriel says to to, um, Mary, who will this Jesus be? He will be the king. (laughs) I love the description of the king. Um, It's not like the the king that, that we know when we read about medieval history, about this, you know, little tin pot dictator that ruled Salisbury or, you know, some bizarre little province in England, you know, and called himself the king. And it's like, you haven't even traveled 20 miles outside of your little fence, man. How are you the king? Jesus is the king. Matter of fact, one of my favorite ways that Jesus is referred to, he's referred to as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He... He is high and lifted up. And when we see him in his second coming, whether we know him as Lord and Savior or not, he will be reigning as the king of kings. He he is the one king that we've all been waiting for. It's so interesting to me how, you know, if you read American history, it's, it's, it's basically a revolt against the totalitarian nature of earthly kings who are not Jesus. They, they love to take power over your life. They love to tell you what to do. And in our heart of hearts, I think we were, we were created to want a king, to want a leader. And Jesus is the only one who will fulfill the desire that, that we have, the longing that we have for a leader, for a king who is a benevolent, loving, merciful, and just king in a perfect way. And when he says, Gabriel to Mary, that, that he will be the king, this is critical, what he says next. After he, he talks about the one that we've all been waiting for, he says that he will reign forever. And then with emphasis, he says, there will be no end to his kingdom. This is what it means. Time and space are all under the rule of Jesus. Okay, now, I can say that, and we're sitting in, you know, the wooden structure that has been built by some, some folks that were really skilled craftsmen of architecture. And, we're, you know, I come into this room sometimes, and I look, and I think, man, how does that beam just not, like, whoo, come down, you know? And, and how do those boards, like, they're so, everything's just kind of nice and really tidy, and then I go and I see this movie, Interstellar. Okay? Like, if you want to have your mind, like, completely blown. I'm sitting there, like, getting a headache, trying to figure, okay, no, wait, the wormhole and the black hole and the two years sleeping in water, and then they go to Saturn, and they go through this thing into another dimension, and there's five dimensions and three dimensions. And the, just that movie, okay, blew my mind about the size of the universe. Like, do you know how big the cosmos is? Do, do you know that theoretical uh, uh, astro, astrono, is it astronomists, 
uh, people who look at the stars, they've created these theories, but they're just theories on how we can go from one galaxy to the next galaxy without us dying because it takes millions of light years to do something like that. And it's just theory from one galaxy to the next. There's a billion galaxies. And we look at this structure, and as beautiful as it is, God created the cosmos. Jesus, it says in Colossians, created the cosmos. And he reigns over all space and time. He is king over the movie Interstellar. That, in my book, makes him the king. There is no contest. He, he, he will reign forever. There will be no end to his kingdom. Not one particle in the universe is not under the reign of Jesus Christ. Not one moment in the time of history, in eternity, is not under the reign of Jesus Christ. This is the person that is born to this Jewish virgin young lady in a dusty city that nobody cares about named Nazareth. How can we possibly walk out of this room and read this text and walk out of here and think that God's love doesn't make the impossible possible? It's incredible to me. The second teaching in in this story that that we go through is that God loves us enough to do the impossible. Uh, Mary's response is maybe like a lot of our responses. If an angel appeared to us, um, you know, and, and if you're a young lady and you're a virgin and this angel shows up and says you're going to give birth to the king of kings and lord of lords who will reign forever over all space and time, and, and, and that's going to be someone who not only is born to you, but you're going to still be a virgin when he's born, uh, your response might be like Mary's. This is what she has, responds by saying, how will this be? <laughs> like, could you tell me a couple of the steps? Because I'm not getting it. Uh, how, how, is this, how is this possible? Uh, Gabriel, do you know the history of our, of our people? That we have constantly and chronically rebelled against the God who favored us. And yet he has rescued us out of Egypt, out of Babylon, out of all these different places. God has rescued us. Do you know that we haven't heard from God in 400 years through the prophets? We're we're beginning to wonder, does he he really love us anymore? I mean... I think her question is not only disbelief that it can happen, but it's almost a despair that it can't happen. There's a despair and a disbelief in Mary's voice, and it might be the same despair and disbelief that you might be carrying around with you. And there's a couple parts of that that just I quickly want to mention. That isn't helping you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ walking around with despair and disbelief that Jesus is who he says he is, you are not being helped. But selfishly, as a pastor and a leader and a person who wants to get this church to do what God has called it to do in the city, 
I want you to walk around with joy and hope, even in suffering, so that you're a great missionary and proclaimer of the truth of God and the good news of Jesus Christ to people who need to know him. Like, I get excited about that, can you tell? A little less excited than I was at Interstellar, but still excited, okay? That, that to me is, I don't want people living in despair and hope because if you can, if despair and disbelief, I'm sorry, take over Mary's life, then the mission of God can be thwarted. She, she might have that despair and disbelief in her voice, and it's the same despair and disbelief that you're carrying around with you. You don't believe that the God who spoke and everything leapt into existence can help you uh, be redeemed, can, can show you grace and mercy and forgiveness of your sin so that you can be conformed to the image of Christ. That's Mary's response. How, how can this be? There's always a way with God. And this next little section of, of this particular story is... Uh, it shows, I, I believe, that there is always a way with God. And many times, hear me on this, he is very clear about the way. Many times he is very clear about the way. We have this thing called the Bible where he's very clear about what he wants to do and what he will do and the plan of his salvation and the plan of, of us serving and us loving the city and proclaiming the good news until Jesus comes. It's very clear. If, if it's muddy to you, you've made it muddy. Jesus and God have been very clear in Scripture on what, uh, uh, what he is doing and his explanation. And, and I, I'll agree Sometimes there is mystery. He's very clear in most situations, and sometimes there is mystery. And I've met people who have been in situations in their life, maybe a little like Mary, where there's despair and disbelief, and, and, and there's a mystery there of like, man, I, I, can't, I can't tell you what God is doing. But, but let me say this. Do you know why God is very clear in certain portions of your life and through the scriptures, and then there is mystery sometimes? Do you know why he's very clear? It's because he wants you to trust him when it's not clear. Not not only does he want you to, he knows that he has demonstrated enough clearly in his word and in the way that he governs the universe that you can trust him when when it's mysterious when there's no explanation of the way that he is doing things. And he wants you to trust that the Holy Spirit of God can do it. You can't do it. Mary Mary could not conceive as a virgin the, the, the ruler of the universe. She couldn't do that on her own. She, she found favor with God, but it was not because of Uh, some extra special merit that she brought to the table. God found favor with her. God, through the Holy Spirit, conceived in her the Son of God, the Most High, the King of all kings, who will rule and is ruling the planet and the cosmos as we speak. It is the work of God. Mary can't do it. The Spirit must work. And I get this from the way that he works with Elizabeth. Because the angel Gabriel tells Mary, hey, Mary, uh, you know, you might be 
confused or this might be mysterious. Let me tell you what he has done in the life of Elizabeth. This woman is barren, and he, the Holy Spirit has worked in her life so that her and her husband conceived a son, John the Baptist, who will prepare the way for the Lord. And I think what Gabriel is saying is, will you notice the work of the Lord that has already been accomplished, and will you believe that nothing is impossible with God? Will you look at that work, and will you believe that nothing is impossible with God? Jesus being sent to the world to ultimately be sacrificed for our sin, and then reigning forever with no end to his kingdom, is only possible through God. And folks, it is the good news. It is the good news. Jesus being sent to the world to ultimately be sacrificed for your sins and reign forever with no end to his kingdom is only possible through God, and it is very good news. I don't know what you're trusting to be good news. I don't know what it is in your life that is, that is beckoning for your attention, that, that wants you to say, you know what, what's really good news is this new house. What's really good news is a better relationship. What's really good news is that we dissolve this marriage and, and maybe there's someone else out there that will be very good news. What's, what's really good news is if the political climate will change through some, you know, voting thing or, or some congressperson doing a particular, you know, a, a bill or, or passing laws. What's really good news is all that. That is not good news. If your trust is in those things, you will be sorely disappointed. Jesus is very good news. He is the very good news. And this is what's really cool. And we'll finish with this. Mary's response. Remember Zachariah's response. Disbelief. And he can't speak until John the Baptist is born because of his disbelief. What's Mary's response? It's worship. Worship is you saying to God, so be it. What you have said, so be it. Who you are, so be it. You are God, I am not. I, I will trust you to do what you ultimately will do by your power. I will trust in the goodness of your plan. Her response is worship. It's worship. Because this week is kind of a special week, let let me tell you what worship looks like. Worship looks like you, responsibly, of course, celebrating the season like you've never celebrated it before. Giving lavish gifts, responsibly, don't go into debt, to, to your loved ones, and telling them, this gift is awesome. Whatever it is, you know, the, the, the three-wheeler. You know, that was, the, you know, the, ooh, yes, the three-wheeler. Whatever, this gift is awesome. There is a greater gift that makes it pale in comparison. But because of that greater gift, you get to enjoy the lesser gift 
with a reckless abandon of joy and hope because that gift, even though it's small and plastic and will be one day destroyed, is, is a symbol, it's a sign of the greatest gift given to you, which is forgiveness of your sins through Jesus Christ, our King of kings and our Lord of lords. Feast. This week, feast. Responsibly. Take a walk after lunch. I mean, and when you're feasting on that prime rib or that Christmas cookie or the third or fourth Christmas cookie, remember that you will be feasting and celebrating with the King of Kings at his banquet table forever. Right? It it puts a whole new connotation to all this stuff that we do, that we can have joy and hope in spite of suffering, in mystery and in clarity. We know the God who will one day make everything right. We serve him. He has saved us. He's forgiven us. He's given us his grace. Worship God. Say to him, so be it. Say to him, so be it. I will trust in the goodness of your plan. The impossible is accomplished because... God loves you. He wants your heart and your worship. He he died and rose again so that you can have life abundantly in true relationship with the God who made you. That's why Christians should have a huge smile on their face. And I know not all the time because we let those things creep in that distract us from that, that, that experience of worship with the Lord. We can have joy. We can have hope. We can have peace because God's love makes the impossible possible. We're going to celebrate um, communion. and I hope this is a great kickoff to the rest of your feasting this week because this is representative uh, of the feast that we enjoy through the broken, uh, bro- a broken body of Jesus Christ. And we, we dip the, the bread into the wine or juice representing the forgiveness of sins. It, it, it's a time to come and say, Lord... I have fallen short. I have sinned against you. But I am feasting in the mercy and grace of your death on the cross and your resurrection from the dead. Kick off your Christmas week by worshiping Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're invited to the table. If you're not, maybe God is calling to you. Maybe he is changing your heart right now because he changes hearts, not behavior. He knows if he gets that heart changed, if he saves that, all that stuff, the abundant life that he promised in John chapter 10 will will be yours. It may not look like you think it's going to look, but it will be yours. If he saves you today, you can come to the table, celebrate communion for the first time, taking the bread, dipping it in the wine or the juice to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. Father, this is going to be the greatest Christmas ever. For, for some of us, this is going to be the greatest Christmas ever. Because you, maybe for the first time, have illuminated our, our soul through the power of your Holy Spirit. You have given us uh, the greatest gift that we can have, which is being rescued 
from our sin, being saved from our selfishness, being delivered from death into life. And even those of us who who are followers of Christ who are struggling in despair and disbelief because our plan hasn't happened, will you just infuse us with the trust that only your Holy Spirit can give, that we will walk out of that despair and disbelief knowing that whatever happens on the planet, Jesus is in control. His plans will never be thwarted. His mercy is forever. His reign is eternal in time and over all creation. Give us a sense of grandeur of who you are and let us worship you like Mary did in trust and belief. We pray this in Jesus' name as we come to your table. Amen.